Welcome to Tomorrow's Med Student. On this podcast, we talk to medical school admission tutors, medical students and doctors to help you get more of an insight into the application process to medical school, life as a medical student and life as a doctor. Today, we were lucky enough to speak to Professor Marcus Drake, who's a urologist by background, so a surgeon who works on the urinary tract, and he's an admissions tutor and head of year five at Bristol Medical School. We had a great chat, and if he doesn't leave you inspired to be a doctor, I don't know who will. We spoke about what makes Bristol Medical School unique, their selection process, which interestingly doesn't take your personal statement into consideration, and how they promote widening participation in medicine, amongst loads of other things about Bristol Medical School. We also spoke to Professor Drake about his career to date, including what he considers the biggest challenges and biggest highlights of his career. And at the end of the interview, we had a really interesting chat about medical school interviews. So let's get to it. Professor Drake, thanks for taking the time to chat to us today. One of the first questions we like to ask is a bit of an icebreaker. If you could invite any two people to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be and why? Well, hello and thank you very much indeed. So, um, yeah, I have to say this is a very interesting thought, isn't it? There's such a great uh, opportunity to really get to meet some fantastic people from history. But I have to say two things that have really inspired me through my life have been uh, astronauts and explorers. So, to be honest, I'd love to have dinner with any Apollo astronaut. I was very lucky at school. I met Hale Irwin, who was in, let's see, Apollo 15. I have a photograph signed by him right next to me. So saluting the American flag at the Apollo 15 Hadley Apennine landing site on the moon. I mean, wow. The the other chap that I'd like to meet is Ranulph Fiennes, who is still alive. Uh, He was remarkable because he did the Transglobe expedition that went round the globe, but pole to pole rather than round the equator. And some of the things that he did were absolutely extraordinary, including floating across the Arctic Ocean. Uh, I just can't believe that he achieved that. So I'd love to just find out what made him tick to do that. Yeah, he, he's a mind-boggling character as well. I think I read somewhere that at one point it, uh, during one of the treks, he just took his shoe off and threw off a bit of his toe and then carried on again. Absolutely um, yeah. right. And he's very descriptive as well at one point when his penis went completely numb and the sense of panic for about an hour as he had to get that sort of restored to uh, sensation. Yeah, I think I'd be uh, looking to go home if that happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> Straight away. You're going to sort it out before you go home, Amrit. <laughs> so my wife's appreciative for that sort of advice, I'm sure. Um, if, uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> if, um, if you weren't a doctor, what would you be doing, do you think? So at medical school, I did a lot of rowing uh, and I did a lot of rowing coaching. So um, I think that's what I would do now. Having just seen the boat race the other day, the first bit of live sport for ages, I just loved it. So just would love to get back into rowing coaching. Oh, cool. Yeah, those early mornings aren't aren't for me, but yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, the land training, particularly the the early morning land training, when your body hasn't assimilated its coffee and you've got to go and pull a five-kilometre ergo is horrendous. Yeah, I think the ergo is probably uh, waiting for people in hell. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, of course it is. But on the water is absolute heaven. I can imagine. So to start off with, could you tell us what you do at Bristol Medical School? 
Yeah, so a few things actually. So I'm professor of urology, uh, but for the medical school uh, student intake, I'm admissions tutor and head of year five. And then I'm also head of research for the National Health Service Hospitals, or rather associate director of research. So quite a lot, quite busy time. Sounds pretty full on. And as a part of the admissions team, what, what do you think makes Bristol Medical School unique? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. So Bristol, it's got a fantastic atmosphere as a city, uh, a really great place with good connections, good sport, good culture, good food, great countryside nearby. So it's a brilliant place to live. And then the course itself, that's um, it's now done uh, a full round of the redesigned curriculum. So we're coming up to the fifth year, which will be the first time that we do the curriculum, the new curriculum. And it's a fully integrated course with themes that run throughout the course as well as uh, throughout the years. And these are really uh, designed to open up your ways of thinking and your ways to exploit opportunities and to also understand yourself. So alongside the actual medicine that you'll be learning, you'll become a much better individual. And I think that really helps the course to become uh, a unique exemplar for other medical schools. Well, that's interesting. So what are the, some of the um, key changes you've made to the course? I think the main, the main aspect is really just to teach you how to think it through for yourself so that you can actually really take on board the sort of attitudes that you're going to benefit from as you become a more senior doctor. So obviously as a junior doctor, it's quite a prescribed lifestyle. You need to do certain tasks, you need to pick up skills, you need to start to um, fit into a multidisciplinary team. And beyond the junior doctor years, you need to start developing your own career, the specialty of interest and how you're going to make a success of that. And so what the medical school now is doing at Bristol is bringing that down to a much earlier stage so that you're really going to take charge of your own development, supported in a way that you will then be familiar with the um, career progression that you're going to be experiencing later on. Well, that is quite important. I think um, certainly from my perspective, when I graduated and I started F1, uh, and I started looking forward, I realised there was a lot I could have done sooner to prepare myself for my career moving forward. And uh, you, you feel yourself playing catch up a lot of times with some of your peers who are a bit more uh, switched on or coached towards doing those sorts of things. So that's very interesting. Absolutely. Well, in year five, we've we've adapted year five now, the final year, to um, make sure that finals is out of the way by the time you start year five. So you're going to do finals in year four, meaning that in year five, you've got a clear run at a whole range of things that you can really use to develop those skills, such as audit, presentation, teaching, multidisciplinary working, familiarity with a range of uh, specialties at a deep level. So that year five suddenly becomes the opportunity for you really to explore things under stress conditions. It's absolutely great. Yeah, that's really good. What, what sort of uh, advice would you give to someone who's applying to Bristol Medical School? Yeah, so the, the main thing that you've, you've got to bear in mind is that you have got to have the right attitude. Uh, you very much need to enter this profession with a caring attitude, a determination to 
stand out as a, a professional that supports, wants to do the right thing, wants to improve their own practice and therefore apply it so that the individual patients they're treating benefit. So I think my advice to anyone applying to Bristol, but in fact, any medical school is look into your heart and check that actually the reason that you're doing this is because you genuinely want to see the world a better place and the patients better off. There can be no other reason, I would say, to go into medical school. Clearly, uh, medical school applications are becoming more and more competitive. How do you think students can make themselves stand out or put themselves forward in the best light? I don't really consider that a particularly great question because okay. it's a highly personal thing. I'm sorry, that didn't mean I didn't mean to sound rude, Amrit, but <laughs> the answer is to have an outstanding feature. And it can be almost anything, but it, you do need to have something about you that's outstanding, uh, a particular academic skill, a particular caring skill, a particular level of experience, a particular vision. There needs to be something about you that is actually clear-cut, uh, a leader, uh, an absolutely fantastic person. Uh, it's, I think it's really hard for people now to try and feel as though they can stand out, have a passion. I think that's enough to push you forward sometimes. Yeah, and I've been very struck at times how it doesn't need to be a CV line that's outstanding. It's just that it comes, it comes over as you speak to an individual. And so a couple of years ago, we were running uh, as part of our interview process, a uh, actor playing the part of a patient and when you turned up for interview, you were expected to uh, do a mock consultation with the patient. And, it, you know, you were given the sort of ground rules and the context. But that is an incredibly challenging scenario. And you can immediately see um, how confidence is required for that and a certain level of knowledge. We, we were not expecting, obviously, medical knowledge, but we were expecting the ability to empathise, to engage the patient, to listen to the patient, to bring out from the patient the points that they wanted to make. And I have to be honest, there were some brilliant individuals who I don't think had much else in terms of impressive lines on the CV, like won national awards or um, medals or something or other. But as they interviewed the patient, that was the outstanding feature and we were left saying to ourselves, that person must come to our medical school. So it doesn't have to be a CV point. You just got to make sure that you understand patients and can get a right thing out of your patients. And that might be your outstanding feature. That, that's really nice to know, actually. Uh, yeah, sometimes you feel like we're uh, even even after you get into medical school and you or, you're walking along the path of a career in medicine that you're ticking boxes and trying to just get lines on the CV. So it's nice to know that there is this almost human element to the selection process. Yeah, there is a human element to the selection process. And there's also a human element to the most successful of our doctors. And obviously that's not, it's, it's incredibly varied, but somebody that doesn't actually care about people, that's not really going to go down at all well with, with anything uh, in terms of a successful career. You do need to absolutely have at the forefront what's good for humanity. Definitely. 
And in terms of the application process, where does the UCAT score and the personal statement fit into the application process? Do you use the UCAT score to screen applicants before you look at their personal statements or do you take both in combination before screening out for interview? We don't look at personal statements at all, completely ignore them. Um, the UCAT score is used for selecting to uh, interview. So basically we have about 1,100 interview places in general each year. And so the top 1,100 UCAT scores will basically be the people invited to interview. Oh, okay, that's really interesting. And can, can I ask why the decision was made not to look at people's personal statements? They're largely made up, aren't they? <laughs> okay. That's a slightly cynical view. Most of them have a significant amount of true content, but um, there are enough uh, personal statements produced that clearly are pretty tenuous, um, somewhat overstated, and we don't want people to be pushed into uh, feeling that they need to exaggerate things in order to, to sell themselves. We just want to make sure that the person that we interview comes over genuinely. Um, and certainly when I've looked at personal statements at previous medical schools in the past, I've, I've been struck by how, oh, my goodness, we'd love to offer this person a place at the medical school. And then when you saw that same person at interview, it's not the same person. That's very interesting. And is Bristol Medical School quite unique in, in that aspect? Um, Your knowledge? Well, I, yeah, my knowledge on who's looking at personal statements across the medical schools, I'm a bit uncertain. I don't think it's unique. Um, many schools still do, but I suspect that it's just a slow decline in scrutiny of personal statements. That's interesting. Uh, and I, I definitely see um, the problems as you've articulated them, definitely. And Bristol Medical School, how does the medical school encourage widening participation in medicine? I mean, it's absolutely crucial to the extent that um, the medical admissions tutor role is a joint role, um, meaning that I'm one medical admissions tutor and the other is the widening participation officer, Simon Atkinson. So jointly, we run the process and we have equal um, call on how the process is set up and we absolutely respect each other's opinions. Um, working as a team, therefore widening participation actually is a dominant factor in the decision-making as we um, set up our admissions processes. So we are very careful about the uh, metrics that we are using and checking that we do strongly encouraging widening participation as best we can in all aspects. And so we got our gateway course and our scholarships um, and adjusted grade requirements, um, meaning that the actual numbers in the widening participation are, I think, above national averages. Oh, cool. And what, um, sorry, just for the, those who don't know, what, what are your adjusted grade averages? What, what does that mean? What does that entail? So um, when we make an offer, you need to make, uh, you need to achieve certain grades, um, with your A-levels or the equivalent exams that you sit. And we have adjusted by one or two grades such that uh, people from widening participation backgrounds um, do not need to meet the same threshold to have their offer uh, confirmed.
Oh, well, okay. But, but at that point, they would have scored well enough on the UCAT and they would have performed well enough for the interview that you want them. And then you'll give some sort of dispensation for if they don't meet the grade that they're expected to. Precisely. So if they're in the top 1,000 UCAT scores, they'll get interviewed. If they interview well, they'll be made an offer. And um, in order to meet the requirements of the offer, they'll be asked to achieve uh, lower grade thresholds than the general offer. And mentioned scholarships. Um, what sort of financial support will st do students have on offer at Bristol University and Medical School? Yeah, so there are the student um, finance pages on the university website that set this out because there's quite a wide range of uh, different criteria that we will uh, use in order to try to help uh, students financially. Um, it's quite diverse. There, there are a couple of scholarships. These are set up by altruistic individuals for very specific groups, but the student finance pages are the place to go to to work out um, what might apply to you personally if you're considering applying. And so two questions, both linked. Who would you recommend the Bristol Medical School course to and who would you not rec recommend the course to? There's a strong course across all areas. So uh, it's the potential to tailor to yourself and in particular year five. I would pretty much recommend this course to anyone who's genuinely interested in pursuing a career in medicine. Um, who would I not uh, recommend this course to? Well, you need to have a, a drive to do medicine in your heart. Uh, so if a student is sort of really ambivalent about medicine, but is being encouraged, for example, by family members, oh, you should do medicine because it's a good career. It's not a good career if it's not in your heart. So I would not encourage people to apply if that applies to them. And of course, that's for medical school in, in general, not only Bristol. Yeah, no, I completely echo that sentiment. Yeah, you know, I've only been a doctor a short while, but it's clear that if you don't enjoy it, it's, it's a very hard career to be putting yourself through. Absolutely. And then you've done all that commitment for five or six years. Um, and then you're trying to sort of get going in the early rungs and you feel obliged because of all the financial support that there's been for you. And then suddenly you reach um, middle age and you just feel, oh, my God, I don't want to keep this up. Till retirement it's i've had a couple of friends who have really regretted having been pushed into medicine by their by their parents yeah i can see that easily happening can i ask your graduates what sort of specialties do they typically go into do you have a strong streak of people going into primary care or secondary care or is it quite varied it is very varied to be honest i think primary care is the bigger um area um but uh, you know, loads of surgeons, pathologists, respiratory physicians, lots of medical uh, doctors, uh, sorry, doctors in hospital medicine, um, but also uh, community, uh, public health. Yeah, so I, I would say that it's as diverse as it could be. Thank you. Uh, Professor Drake, I, that's all the questions on Bristol uh, Medical School. I've just got some questions to ask you, some personal questions, if that's OK. Sure. So um, can you tell us why you decided to study medicine? Yeah, no, this was um, I was always interested in science. And I, at one point I was thinking of applying to do a natural science degree. And then my dad just said, well, like, yeah, OK, why not? 
Um, but bear in mind that if you go to do a natural science degree, you'll be you'll be following as a career in science. But if you go into medicine, you could end up doing medicine or science. And uh, he was absolutely right. Here I am. I'm professor of physiological urology, so I'm doing medical science. And, and it's a very, very engaging career. Um, science and medicine is absolutely fantastic. If you've got what it takes, then you can get good access to grant funding and really see impact resulting from the research that you do. So a great place to do science, and you're also helping patients very much. And so you're, you're a surgeon, you're a consultant surgeon and a professor. For those who, who don't know what those two jobs are, what, what does your typical week like, look like in those roles? Yeah, so um, I'd say about a fifth of my week is looking after medical school, the, the student activities, because I'm heading up year five and admissions. And so that will involve um, developing um, strategic requirements, the teaching within our academies at the medical school, sorting out the assessments, uh, supporting individual students. And then about a fifth of the week involves direct contact with researchers working on the grants that I've um, got responsibility for. So managers for the clinical trials, research nurses, and a range of other scientists. About two fifths of the week is in clinical medicine. So I'll do two operating lists a week and a clinic. And then my final activity is strategic research. So overseeing the um, direction of research of the NHS hospitals in Bristol. There are two major hospitals, Southmead Hospital and the Bristol Royal Infirmary. And it's a, it's a good policy for any uh, research active university just to make sure that there's a coherent strategy coordinating this activity. So that's the other part of my time. It's a really diverse, somewhat uh, full life. It sounds very varied, uh, must keep you engaged all the time. How do you manage uh, all of those different hats you wear? Extreme organisation, to be honest. You, you really need to keep on top of everything. And because as soon as you let things slip, then it can sort of rapidly mushroom into this sort of enormous challenge that's almost impossible to make up. So you've got to be incredibly well organised and um, definite on decisive uh effective keeping things going and ha has it been difficult balancing family life with your really busy professional career well i think for for most doctors actually it is it is a bit of a challenge because you may well be married to somebody that that wishes to pursue their own career uh, obviously children uh, they need love and support and with the time involved in passing postgraduate exams and working a bit busy job, it, it can be difficult to balance things. But if you just make sure that you're, you know, thinking of your family and not selfishly heading off to do your own activities by yourself, um, I think that most of us do manage to get it about right and remain reasonably okay on the family front. I think my um, children are reasonably happy with <laughs> what they've achieved so um, I won't quiz them too hard on the subject though. 
<laughs> fair, fair enough. What's a, what's been the highlight of your career to date? Oh, I think one of the one of the things that I really, really was very happy to get was um, I published a hypothesis in the Lancet, which is a pretty um, significant medical journal, and a hypothesis which is basically a new way of looking at a certain challenge in medicine. So they're incredibly hard to get published. So to have one published in such a major article was really a, a, a strong highlight for me. Yeah, for anyone that doesn't know, getting published in the Lancet is what, what's it akin to, really? It's like uh, it's the pinnacle, really, isn't it? You know, you, you really feel like, yep, yeah, I'm happy that I feel a real sense of pride that the the um, ability to consider this new insight into physiology, apply it into medicine and actually convince peers that, yeah, actually that is new, that is important, that really should be known by the community. Uh, there's a, a, a big rewarding feeling associated with that. And what would you say has been the biggest challenge of your career to date? Well, I, I would I would say that going into academic medicine, so the actual research active aspect of medicine is is very challenging because you need to convince some pretty hard to convince tough individuals that you've got what it takes. So you need to get strong publications and you need to win grants and grants are incredibly competitive. So I think that the challenge is uh, actually pursuing an academic line in surgery. Yeah, I think that's my personal feeling but that's that's some way down the line actually uh from uh, considering which medical school to go to no it is definitely and uh, that brings me nicely back to one of the final questions what advice would you give to someone who's just about to start their application to go to medical school i think it's important to bear in mind that nothing is irrelevant in terms of life knowledge. Uh, it's really important to have a good outlook to understand what your patients are likely to be experiencing and just to soak it all up, really take it on board and get these life lessons established in yourself. And that way you can really turn this around into an empathic approach to things. I would also say, be a bit wary about the advice that you receive. So you might well hear some advice as you're preparing for your interview of um, if you're asked a question about a bad trait about yourself, try and turn it into a good trait or, or something sort of unreasonable like that. Because I must say that one of the things that dismays me when I'm listening to an interview is if if we are so has anything gone badly in your life and somebody says oh i was doing the doing the duke of edinburgh awards and i was leading a group and we took a wrong turn and so the group had to walk a few extra miles that's not the answer we're looking for i will be absolutely explicit if you give that answer you're making a mistake give something real yeah that's really good advice i think lots of people worry about um highlighting a true weakness but uh i think you know i think what we need in medicine are people who are insightful enough to really reflect and articulate their weaknesses and show that they're you know trying to work on them so i suppose that's that's a very good absolutely and the duke of edinburgh award you know that's just we hear that perhaps uh, that answer is perhaps given by two-thirds perhaps of our middle class applicants and 
it does not go down well. It's interesting. Maybe they're all being coached. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's exactly how it comes over. We think you've been coached. We think potentially that you may have had um, some opportunities given to you in your life. Um, and if that's the extent of challenge that you've had to face up to, taking a wrong turn and walking a couple of extra miles, I wouldn't give that a second thought as a challenge. That's not a challenge. That's simply life. No, think of a real challenge that you've had to overcome. That's a really good place for us to finish, I think. Thank you very much for today. Well, I'm sorry if it sounds a bit intimidating, but the that that's actually what you're heading towards in medicine is you are going to be encountering people that have been uh, smashed up in a road traffic accident, potentially have lost a limb, or you're going to be dealing with people uh, whose loved one has suddenly died of a blood clot, or somebody that's facing chemotherapy for cancer, and you need to have something more under your belt in terms of empathy for patients than I got a bit ticked off because I took a wrong turn on a walk. Yeah, it's true. I think um, sometimes uh, people think those examples are hyperbole, but certainly you know, they, they do exist. And the other thing we don't talk about is one day you might make a mistake and that weighs quite heavy as well. Yeah, yeah. That's no, absolutely. And um, and it's also quite interesting as well when mistakes um, come up, you know, what mistakes have you what mistakes have you made or how would you deal with somebody else's mistake? It's quite interesting how often people seem to think it's black and white. Oh, they made a mistake and therefore they need to be told that was a mistake. Um, actually, no, that's not quite right, you know, because a mistake is actually probably reflective of a situation that's far more complex than just here's the challenge, there's the answer, oh, there was a mistake. There will be a lead-in to all that that potentially would, was distracting or disrupting or caused issues and therefore a mistake that wouldn't normally have happened did happen. And so it's not the individual's sole responsibility for the mistake. It's a situation that has to be interpreted with considerable detail uh, and insight into what causes mistakes. So you can't really afford to have a simple attitude towards mistakes. Um, you need to be thinking of why overall was the situation allowed to develop into that sort of circumstance that enabled a mistake to arise? That's a far more complicated and much more real life um, insight into how mistakes should be dealt with. That's really interesting. So, so do you find that candidates normally struggle in these areas of, um, you know, tell me you know, your biggest challenge to deal with this? How would you handle this mistake or... Are those the sorts of places where you really start to separate good from very good candidates? Well, I'll tell you who does well in this, and this is basically why we do emphasise these points in our exams, is that the widening participation candidates do better with this sort of question. That's very interesting. Because they can really call on uh, so much more life experience that they, they just sort of understand what the point that you're making is actually something that I live with and I experience. And therefore, I will come out with how I dealt with it. And so it's, it's incredibly valuable that the widening participation is emphasised because then suddenly you have a whole cohort of people who have had challenges in their childhood and have dealt with them. 
and have still managed to get themselves into a position where they're a credible, a credible applicant to medical school. Medical school, brilliant person. We love to have them in medical school. That's really interesting. And do you track everyone? Clearly, you track everyone that goes through your medical school. And you know, do you find that once people are in medical school, you can tell the difference academically and perform and other performance measures uh, between people who come from these widening participation backgrounds and and people who don't yeah so they are of course they are tracked through medical school but that will be by the directors of the medical degree rather than individual yearly it's not it's not tracked by medical admissions tutor but it is tracked by widening participation officer so yes we can answer that though it's not shared with me as a yearly so i can't actually answer the question um but I think that what we find is um, that these individuals do fine in medical school and are in a very solid position, strong position when it comes to actually practicing medicine. I'm hopefully encouraging for people who think medicine's not for them despite wanting to do it. Oh yeah, I think you can always consider yourself appropriate for medicine if you've got the right attitude in your heart if you can diversify the skills within the profession, the, the ability of the profession generally to relate to the people that they're having to deal with, then you are a bonus to the profession. So it's not a homogeneous group of individuals with a certain background and sort of um, predictable uh, life course. It's very much in modern practice uh, driven by the requirements of the population that we serve. And so the makeup of our doctors needs to reflect the population that we serve. So I, I would absolutely say if you're bright, motivated, enthusiastic, caring, and got a spark to you, then that entitles you to consider applying to medical school. It is not a requirement to go and do musical instrument, play for the first 15 at rugby. That is just not essential in modern applications. To the extent that when it comes to Bristol, you will not be asked about anything like that because we don't look at your personal statement. We only look at the UCAT score and how you do in a predefined series of questions for interview. None of which is, do you play for the first 15? That's, uh, that's really encouraging and uh, completely different to, um, well, not completely, but slightly different to when I applied to medical school. So it's nice to know that things have changed slightly in um, uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's extremely different from when I applied to medical school. Yeah, no question about it. What was it like when you applied? Um, well, the fact that I used to do sport was was looked on very favourably. Um, it was a very non-standardised in interview, so it was a conversation, and I don't really remember anything about it. Bring uh, things like dealing with challenges, uh, coping with adversity, adversity, interviewing a patient, nothing like that. It was just a, a friendly little chat with a group of um, senior male professors. It's changed a lot. For the good, I think, hopefully. For the good, absolutely. Yeah, your, the Bristol process feels a lot like your professor professional career interviews so it's probably good a good experience or window into what the future will look like when it comes to applying for your specialty jobs as a as a doctor 
Yep, yep, I think that's probably fair, but we also include nurses, qualitative researchers, even some senior medical students from all backgrounds. Um, every background is represented in our interview panel. Oh, that's really neat. It's very thorough. I, I, I kind of want to apply to Bristol Medical School now just to see what it's like. <laughs> well, yeah, you'd be welcome, Amrit, but yeah, I think you'd have an unfair advantage. <laughs> no, I didn't do a Duke of Edinburgh, so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's my, that's my point, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, wonderful. Uh, look, Professor Drake, honestly, this was, wow, really insightful. Um, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you gave so much more than I could have hoped in terms of insight. And, uh, you know, I think if I was from a, a non-traditional background listening to this, I think I'd be quite inspired. Um, Good. That's thank exactly you. what we want. And even though I am from a traditional background, I'm white, male, middle class, that doesn't mean that that is uh, the everlasting future. And we are absolutely supportive of every background um, that has to be represented in medicine because of the population served. We really want them to apply to our medical school and we will absolutely, if you think you've got what it takes, then just sit there and tell us what's right about you and we will respect it. Thank you, Professor Drake. I think we'll leave it there. Lovely. Very nice to talk to you, Amrit. It's been a real pleasure. And that's the end of today's episode. I hope it was useful and provided you some insight into Bristol Medical School's application process and gave you a better idea of what's really expected of you when it comes to medical school interviews. I think Professor Drake did a really great job of um, helping cut through some of the bad advice that you can get when it comes to preparing for your interviews. In the show notes, there are some links to Bristol Medical School admissions pages, including the scholarship pages for Bristol Medical School and Bristol University. Um, so please check those out if you're interested. If you have any questions about what was covered in today's podcast or any other questions into medical school applications, please do reach out to us on our Instagram or Twitter accounts and email address. And if you have any feedback at all, please do let us know.